At this time, we'll now read from the Bible in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Read verses 1 through 30 of Matthew chapter 26 at this time. We'll do that in connection with Lord's Day 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which begins a treatment of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we read this word of God. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people, unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But, they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body. She did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests, and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth, as it is written of him, 
but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. May the Lord bless us in the reading of that portion of Scripture. On the basis of that passage and all of Scripture stands the instruction of Lord's Day 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question, questions and answers 75 through 77. There we read as follows, How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits? The answer is thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him. Adding these promises, first, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me. As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood, as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? The answer is, it is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ, and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also besides that, to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost, who dwells both in Christ and in us, so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth, are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh, and bone of his bone, and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul. And then number 77, where has Christ promised that he will certainly, as fee, certainly feed and nourish believers with his body and blood as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? The answer is in the institution of the supper which is thus expressed. Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, 
Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This promise is repeated by the Holy Apostle Paul where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, because we are all partakers of that one bread. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to another confessional statement, the Belgic Confession, Article 35, which also treats the Lord's Supper, we with the Church of All Ages, on the basis of Scripture, confess, in that lengthy article, just this sentence at the beginning, we believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ did ordain and institute the sacrament of the Holy Supper for this purpose, to nourish and support those whom he hath already regenerated and incorporated into his family, which is the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven understood that you and I needed a visible sign and seal of our entrance into the kingdom of heaven and that the Lord provided for us in the sacrament of baptism by which we see in the element of the water the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ which washes away from us our sin and renews us in his image and thus makes us citizens of his kingdom and partakers of the life that we have only in Jesus Christ. But as the Belgic Confession teaches us, the Lord in his mercy also understood that we need a sign, a very vivid sign, of his work to maintain and to nourish the life which he has already given us as his people. That's necessary because we are led by the Lord through a wilderness of trial and suffering. And in that wilderness, the Lord is purifying us for our place that he has, uh, has been established for us, which the Father has set as our destination in heaven with him. And for that, we need a complementary sign. And we need that because of the weakness of our faith in this wilderness of trial and suffering, and because of the difficulty of the way. The Lord, in his mercy, has given us a very vivid clear testimony, a sign and a seal that he continues to sustain and to nourish the life he has established in you by himself, the bread and the water of life. And that the Lord gives to us in the second sacrament of the broken bread and the poured out wine of the Lord's Supper. That meets that spiritual need which we have 
in this present life. The Belgic Confession, Article 35 also, much later in the same article, explained to us that while we receive that blessed gift of the Lord of the Lord's Supper and enjoy that sign and seal of the bread of life and the water of life that sustain in us that heavenly life with him, we must do so in humility or with humility and reverence. Those are necessary qualities. We not come to the Lord's table in pride as though we have made ourselves to differ from others and that's why we're here at the Lord's table. We come in humility, knowing our unworthiness. We come in reverence, focusing on not just the bread and the wine, but that which it pictures in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the finished work which he has accomplished. The Lord has given to us that practice of self-examination to nurture those necessary qualities of participating in the sacrament of humility and reverence. And in that humility and reverence, beloved, we must obey the command of the Lord to come, to take, to eat, to partake of the broken bread and the poured out wine in remembrance of him till he comes again. With that in mind, let's consider Lord's Day 28 under the theme in remembrance of our Lord till he comes again. That describes the Lord's Supper. Well, notice, first of all, in remembrance of what work? What are we remembering? In remembrance, secondly, for what reasons? And then thirdly, in remembrance for what benefits do we receive graciously from the Father in the Lord's Supper. In remembrance of our Lord till he comes again, we remember many parts of his suffering and death, including, first of all, that his suffering was a very real suffering. In considering that first aspect of what we remember, we first of all look at the fact that he suffered in body and soul. The scriptures teach that his body was broken. Just as we have and see the minister break the bread, so we are reminded that Christ was broken, which doesn't mean that any of his bones were broken, such as we may have experienced when we have fallen and we've broken a bone. The scriptures teach not one of his bones were broken. When the scriptures teach he was broken, it means that the life in Christ was broken out of him. His life was brought to an end. His heart no longer beat. The earthly brain no longer worked or functioned. According to his human nature, in his body, he died and needed to be buried. In his body, the Bible teaches, his blood was shed. His blood was let out of him. And he shed that blood for his people. He suffered in his soul, the Bible teaches. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, a little later, in Matthew 26, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Reflecting what the prophets 
taught, he poured out his soul unto death. As he stood before the lip of that cup of wrath, stood before the horror of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Secondly, in his suffering, we also notice that he suffered not just here in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he suffered his entire life upon this earth from beginning to end. Already in his birth, in his early years, he suffered. Throughout his teenage years, although Scripture speaks of that very little in Luke chapter 2, nevertheless, we understand Christ as a sinless child would have suffered greatly at the hands of his sinful siblings and even parents. He suffered in his earthly ministry temptation, rejection, mockery, threats, contradiction. He spoke the truth. Those who witnessed him said, no, he speaks the lie. Suffered denials by his own disciples and was forsaken by them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that Christ in the third place regarding his suffering suffered alone. All were against him. Nobody would understand and could understand what he suffered. He suffered alone. That's made clear in the Bible when he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate said three times he's righteous, but then approved his death. He suffered before the false Christ. The high priest Caiaphas condemned him as a false prophet. He suffered at the hands of his own disciples, who in his most difficult hour forsook him, were offended by him, left him. And in those three hours of darkness was forsaken even by his Father in heaven. In the second place, when he was forsaken by his Father, we remember that he suffered and died under the curse. It teaches us that Jesus died as the sinner. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we read that he, Jesus, or God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, though he was righteous and holy, always loved the Father, yet before God's justice and before the law, Jesus was condemned as the sinner. And being the sinner, the one who had violated all of the commandments of God, upon him was laid the curse. And the curse meant he must die. He may not live. He must suffer and be the object of the eternal, infinite wrath of God for the sin which has offended the most high majesty of God. He must be punished he must be cast out. He must be destroyed. For that which he personally never deserved as the ever-blessed one. He became accursed. Thirdly, we remember then, thinking about that curse, the extent of his suffering. He suffered as God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity with his divine nature. 
the divine nature which sustained his human nature under that wrath of God which was directed at him who was accursed. And under that curse of God which he suffered, what was the extent of that suffering? He suffered all of the wrath of God for that curse and for that sin. His human nature was sustained by his divine nature to receive the thunderbolts of that wrath of God and, miraculously, to reach the end of that wrath of God for the sin which he must suffer and then remove that wrath of God away entirely. And all the while he did that, in the fourth place, he obeyed in his suffering. We marvel at the obedience of Christ in his suffering and death. We see that he did not complain when he hung upon the cross. He did not murmur against the Father in heaven or at his disciples who had forsaken him and fled, or in the case of Peter, who had denied him thrice. When he was transferred from one room to the other during that evening and morning of trial, and he looked upon, Je- looked upon Peter, who had just denied him the third time, Christ did not blurt out at him in anger or frustration or murmuring. He looked at Peter with that look of mercy and obedience to the Father concerning the work he had to do even for Peter and for us. He remained obedient even to the darkest hour of those three hours of suffering. That's remarkable, beloved. While he gave up the glory that which he had, which he had with the Father in heaven, and came into our flesh and became a servant, he did not complain. He did not covet some other way for him in life. He denied himself, made himself of no reputation, and in obedience to the Father, went perfectly the way of humiliation to the cross. And we remember in the fifth place, he did that for us, which teaches us to remember the substitutionary character of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. His suffering was always for others. Do you remember the weeping and the wailing women behind him on that death march to the cross? And how they and their error wept for him, and Jesus had to turn to them and say, Women of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for yourselves. Judgment is coming. And they needed to understand, and we also must understand, this death march of Christ to the cross was indeed humiliation for him and part of his suffering, but it was not the end of that Savior and our Mediator. This was part of the work which the Father had sent him to do. He marches to the cross in triumph in that way of obedience to the Father so that his kingdom would be established in his own obedience and righteousness for those whom God had sent him to die and rise again. 
Well, for whom? For everyone? Well, the Bible shows that can't be possible. Jesus had enemies, and he came to destroy them. And even when he hung on the cross, there was a word of salvation to the thief, whom the Lord by his grace brought to him in repentance, but the other thief, there was no word of forgiveness or salvation. Not for everyone. Not even for everyone who hears the gospel preached, which is the error of the false teaching and heresy of the well-meant offer of the gospel, which does not teach a true Christ. Christ did not die for everyone who hears the gospel. Clear example of that is Judas Iscariot heard the gospel for three and a half years. What was his response? He rejected Christ and betrayed him, hardened unbelief against Christ. For whom then did Jesus die? John chapter 10 teaches he laid down his life for his sheep. And for them alone was Jesus' substitute. All those whom the Father gave to him from eternity, all those written in the, in the Lamb's book of life, for them he shed his blood. Does that mean you and I ask, me too? To that question, which is your question and my question, the Lord addresses that in the Lord's Supper. Come to the table of the Lord and remember, I am the Jesus Christ who is your substitute and was your substitute when I hung upon the cross for you and arose again the third day. Believe with all your heart, yes, I am the one who took your place and for your salvation accomplished all of your righteousness, all of your salvation, and your right to eternal life. Which reminds us then in the sixth place that everything Jesus did was perfect. Jesus could not have, could not teach us in the scriptures that response, I am your perfect substitute, unless this next, next aspect is true, that his suffering and death were Perfect, that is, complete. How do we know that it is complete? When we see the broken bread, and so think of the broken body, and see the wine poured out, and so think of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're reminded of what Jesus said from the cross. It is finished. Gone is the darkness. Past are the torments of hell. Removed are the bitter torments of inexpressible anguish under the curse of God. And thus, finished is the payment. Gone is the curse. Full and perfect is the righteousness which he earned for us. Now upon God's people, because of the death of Jesus Christ, is accomplished, is established, that perfect basis for the blessing of God to be anchored to his people. It is finished. 
which means we remember in the death of Christ that nothing needs to be added to that work of Jesus Christ, that redemption. He's the spotless lamb. All of our righteousness that we need before God, he finished it. All of the life that we need in which by faith to walk in his commandments, that's in him. Proven in the resurrection. Established in the resurrection. Guaranteed. When he sends his spirit upon us. And so when we celebrate the supper of our Lord and remember his death till he appear again in the clouds of heaven, we do not offer at the Lord's table another sacrifice of Christ, as the heresy of the Mass teaches, we need to re-sacrifice Christ. No, that's a gross denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We remember it is finished. And in that knowledge of that finished work of Christ, we give ourselves a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him out of faith in him. So contemplating that death of Christ, we then remember number seven, his love for his church and for us in particular. John chapter 13, verse one, we read, now before the feast of the Passover, and so the same time as the time of the text or passage which we read in Matthew 26, John records, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The end of his earthly life. But continues to love us unto the end. And that's a sovereign. That's an unconditional love. It's a love which will obtain what it desires. Does not desire something, but whether it comes to pass, Never know, and maybe it won't. That's not the love of Christ. He loved his own unto the end, and that love accomplishes what it desires. All those whom he loved, unto the end, into the depths of those darkness, he loved them faithfully, unswervingly, all those whom God gave to him before the foundation of the world, even you and me. So unworthy, so undeserving. Though that may be true, in the Lord's, in the Lord's Supper, we are commanded to remember, I have loved you even unto the end. And even unto the end of your life. And thus in the Lord's Supper, beloved, we remember the, wondering, the wonder of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ as the only ground and foundation of all of our salvation. The salvation which is gracious, unconditionally so, very particular, sovereign, almighty, incomprehensible, and yet true and real, and for which we give thanks. Why, why must we have the Lord's Supper? 
First of all, the first reason is that Christ commanded us to have the Lord's Supper. We must do it in remembrance of him because he said so. The Bible teaches us the church must administer the Lord's Supper. And because the Lord has that authority to so govern his church, the church may not take this ordinance and then say, well, all right, this is what the Lord says in the Bible, but we will make some adjustments to what he has said because we think, well, instead of using this element, we'll use something else. Instead of wine, we'll use milk or something else. Or we'll ignore the Lord's Supper as perhaps unnecessary or ignore the rules of self-examination as explained by the Apostle Paul or even become superstitious regarding the sacrament which the Lord forbids. We must administer the Lord's Supper and use the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him with reverence and humility for the glory of God chiefly, for our edification, according to the institution of the Lord, by the church, through a minister of the gospel, in the presence of the elders, by the people of God in the worship service, and with the preaching of the gospel. When that takes place, we communicant members must participate. The Heidelberg Catechism underscores that when it says, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this bread, broken bread, and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him. He commands us when he says to the church, take, or says to us, ye all, take and eat the bread. And then says to us, drink ye all of it. And notice regarding that latter statement of Christ, drink ye all of it, what Jesus did not mean is drink ye and then all of it, as though the word all refers to the wine, but he means drink ye all. That word all refers to his people. Drink ye all of it, the wine that's in the cup. Drink ye all of it. And do this in remembrance of me. So when you hear the pastor, Reverend Smith, administer the Lord's Supper, perhaps you heard that back in October, in the cadence of his voice, drink ye all, and then the slight pause of it. The all referring to the ye. According to the command of Christ. Therefore we must, according to the command of our Lord, come. Take, eat, drink in remembrance of him. And then for us as catechism students, we might think, well, we're not allowed to partake. Are we disobedient to the command of the Lord? And the answer to us as children is no. Through your catechism training, that is our pathway of obedience on the path to partaking of the Lord's Supper. And though it may take many years to get there, Nevertheless, in faithful catechism training, faithfulness and memorizing and doing all of our catechism work, doing that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are faithful to this command. Come, take, eat, drink.
drink in remembrance of me. The day will come when the catechism training is finished. By the grace of God, we may make confession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be received of the Lord at his table to receive that blessed sacrament to the assurance and comfort of ourselves. In second place, we need the Lord's Supper because of our own need. We're prone, as pictured when Peter got out of the ship and then began to walk to Jesus on the sea, we're prone to do the same thing. We remember that as he came closer to Jesus, he began to take his eyes off Jesus and look at the waves below him. And that's our problem in this life. When we take our eyes off Christ, like Peter did, we will begin to sink. And we will sink primarily in two different directions. Either we will sink into the path of being presumptuous, thinking, well, I don't need Christ. I can handle this. I might need him for some things in life, but not everything. I have the wisdom for this situation. I have the strength for this situation. When things are going well, perhaps, I don't really need him. Or the Lord will be impressed with what I do and will bless me because of those things. If we become presumptuous like that, we will begin to sink. Or in the other direction, we'll go in the direction of being doubtful and despondent. Instead of looking at Christ, we begin to look at ourselves and the sins which we have committed and go beyond the confession, yes, I am the sinner, to begin to thinking, well, since I am the sinner, Christ could not possibly wash away my sin. I'm too great of a sinner. And then we begin to sink as we doubt the miraculous and infinite mercy of Jehovah. And because our shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, is merciful to us, he gives us the visible reminder, a very vivid, visible reminder of our only hope in him. He comes to us in the preaching of the gospel so that we hear him crucified and risen again. We're set before the hope and the rock of our salvation. Then from the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, then delivers into our hands and before our noses and before our sight and before our taste. This is my body which was broken for you. And this is my blood which was shed for you. Do this in in remembrance of what I have done for you, what I have finished perfectly for you. By faith, see me, smell, taste, touch my broken body, my shed blood, which has accomplished your redemption. Doing so, then the Lord will grant to us blessed benefits of nourishing the life which he has already, as the Belgic Confession says, has already given to us by the Holy Spirit. 
Now that's clear from the Belgian Confession and Scripture that that's not the benefit for everyone who partakes of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament history. In the Belgian Confession, we also read this further. Though the sacraments are connected with the things signified, nevertheless, both are not received by all men. The ungodly indeed receive the sacrament, receives the sacrament to his condemnation, but he doth not receive the truth of the sacrament, as Judas and Simon the sorcerer both indeed received the sacrament, but not Christ, who was signified by it, of whom believers only are made partakers. And thus what is true of baptism is also true of the Lord's Supper. Not all who receive the visible sign and seal receive that which it signifies of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and all that we have in Jesus Christ. Rather, and rather soberingly, there are those who receive the sacrament to their condemnation, or in the case of wayward people of God, to their chastisement. And with regard to those who are carnal, as those listed here in the Belgian Confession, Judas Iscariot and Simon the Sorcerer, the Lord reminds us there are those in the history of the New Testament church whose hearts are not prepared by the Spirit when the sower sows the seed. And there are tares in the visible church here below for which the sacrament of the Lord's Supper works their judgment. And that motivates us then to follow the instruction of the Apostle Paul to be very careful that we examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table, that we do not eat the sacrament to our chastisement. We receive the sacrament, proper preparation of a true faith, and so come to eat and to drink Christ with the hand and the mouth of faith. Those who come by that hand and mouth and faith will feed on Christ and his word. They will receive instruction, guidance, encouragement, direction. Sometimes we need correction so that we are more thoroughly equipped to live out of Christ by faith unto all good works. He will nourish in us that life of thankfulness, a mind and the will that rest in the finished work of Christ and out of that rest seek to be fruitful in thanksgiving and love to God. Our spirits will be refreshed so that we are not weary in well-doing, but remain faithful in our labors in God's kingdom. We're encouraged to love the Lord, to love our fellow saints, and to serve one another in the church. Even in tribulation, even in the squeeze of persecution, through the Lord's Supper, we are encouraged to submit to that mighty hand of God, which will turn those evils also to our advantage. And then secondly, the benefit, the other main benefit is assurance. The Catechism uses that and teaches that when it says assured and certainly. Through the partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are assured and all that Christ has done for us 
is made clear to us and we are encouraged by the Lord's Supper to understand that certainly as this happens before my eyes, so it is so sure that Christ had his body broken for me and his blood shed for me. Beloved, that's the assurance we need, isn't it? It's very easy to lose that assurance, isn't it? Very easy for us to become shaky in that certainty of our own salvation. Perhaps we might think today, well, I know I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. But as our life goes on, and even at the very end of our life, when we're close to death's door, even then, God's people can wrestle with the assurance of their salvation as the devil tries one more time to get at that sheep, to have the sheep deny the Lord. We need that assurance. And to nurture that assurance in us, that assurance, that really humble conviction, yes, I am one of God's sheep, not because of anything I have done in my life, not because of that I'm worth anything of myself, but because of Christ alone and by his grace alone, I am one of his adopted children. To have that assurance, beloved, gives us purpose in life. We get up in the morning and, yes, I belong to my faithful Savior. I will now go and serve him in whatever station and calling he has given me. I understand Knowing that I belong to him, I understand that in Christ I have value. Under God's favor and blessing, God views me as his jewel. And having that insurance, I am encouraged not to give up in this life when there is the squeeze of tribulation. We press on in patience when we're in the heat of the battle of sin against all of the temptations that we face, this assurance encourages me to fight the good fight of faith. And it encourages us, beloved, to trust in the living God, our Heavenly Father, that from day to day, he who gives me this sacrament, not by chance, but by even his fatherly will for my assurance, I may then be assured he will continue to supply all my needs in the way forward until he receives me to him in his house. The Lord is pleased to bless you and me with that assurance and to bolster that assurance through that very simple and yet wonderful sign and seal of the Lord's Supper. And while the manner of that working of the Holy Spirit to use just that little simple piece of bread and that simple small cup of wine to work that assurance in us, though it's mysterious, yet it's real, according to the Catechism. As certainly as I see with my eyes, by faith, the bread of the Lord broken for me, and the wine poured out, so certainly, I know what? 
Well, by the mysterious working of the Spirit, I know assuredly that his body was offered and broken for me on the cross, and his precious blood was shed also for me. And the benefit of that, beloved, is peace. Peace with God, knowing not out to destroy me this week. He's my friend through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to work all things together for my good. Peace with God and the assurance of his favor all the days forward. The result is strength to serve him faithfully and to live unto him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we give thanks to thee for the rich blessing and comfort of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Thankful thou dost give to us, so unworthy and so undeserving, thy blessing and the unspeakable gift of thine only begotten Son, all the redemption and salvation that are only in him. Grant, Father, that we may continue to rejoice in the blessing of the sacrament in our congregation. May we use it faithfully so that together we may confess that in Christ we have the only ground and foundation of all of our salvation. And being anchored to him through the Holy Spirit, make us, Father, fruitful branches to bring forth good fruits of thankfulness and praise unto thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.